Good morning. Uh, in our passage today, we've come to what is probably the most familiar passage in all of the book of Exodus, maybe one of the most familiar passages in Scripture, which is the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea. Uh, this is probably a passage that you have heard since you were a child, whether you grew up in church or not. Um, Bob Marley writes a song about this event. I um, mean, you can find it all over our culture. You can find it in poetry. You can find it in music. You can find it in so many different ways. So this is a very, very familiar story. Now, there's a lot of ways that you can look at that because if you ever dig into this story, you find that a lot of the controversy is surrounded on where exactly did they cross the Red Sea? Did they cross in a place that's actually called the Sea of Reeds? Or did they cross in a place that's a little more north of there? Um, where the waters were deeper, um, or was it a place where um, maybe it was a different time period, therefore the waters were higher and reached into different places where it could be the northern part and there could have been reeds growing there at the same time. Uh, and I think that really you, you miss a lot of focus time when you focus on things about where they actually cross. Now, I'm not saying that there's not any validity to it. There is, and it's a good conversation to have, and it's a good thing to look through. But it is not the emphasis of the text to figure out exactly where they crossed this Red Sea. Uh, I think also there's a lot of application to this story, to our own stories, and I think that there is some misguided efforts there as well. We'll talk about that today, but what we want to do is just kind of focus in, because we have limited time this morning because of this approaching storm, so we didn't want to just sit here for a couple of hours and talk. We're not having the second service, just to make sure everybody has time to get home safely, and right now we are blessed with no rain hitting this tin roof, so uh, you will be able to hear me. If that kicks in here in a minute, um, I want to have to talk louder, so that you can hear what I'm saying too. So let's kind of focus in our efforts for a moment to this text and let's see what God has for us this morning. So after being rescued, I, I want to point out that those first few verses there point to this very interesting instruction that God gives to them. That is, imagine for a moment that you were the slaves in Egypt. All of these 10 plagues have happened. God miraculously rescues you. Now you're walking out. You're walking towards your freedom and all of a sudden God says, I want you to go backwards. I want you to go, you've already passed this place, but I want you to go back to that place and camp. Now you would be sitting there thinking, now, wait a minute. We just got freed from this. We've gone this far. Why are we going backwards? Why are we backtracking? Now, if we see this in light of the passage that we studied last week, I think there is that connection. There is a place where God could have taken them, but he didn't want to take them in that direction. The scripture says from our passage last week, because he didn't want them to see the war, the battle that was taking place because their hearts would be overcome with fear. Um, and they would want to turn back and go to Egypt. So imagine that this was the alternative and their hearts were still struck with fear and wanted to go back with Egypt. Imagine how bad that would have been. I mean, they probably would have dropped everything and ran because God knows what's in the heart of his people. So he brings them back to this place. And if we had a map of ancient Egypt, these places that are mentioned here, we probably could find them on a map and we could see exactly where their position, where they're facing and where the Red Sea is in, uh, in relation to that. But really, that's not the important part of this passage. Really, those first four verses are setting up this really a situation, if you want to think about it that way, a situation where God's going to have to intervene for them. 
If you notice in this story, as it unfolds from beginning to end, God keeps putting them in places where they have to give up their own efforts and completely trust him. And again, this is what happens. God brings them to this place where they can't cross the river on their own. They can't get around this river. They have a deep river, a sea it's called, right in front of them. Okay? And behind them, they have the forces of Egypt that are coming at them. Now remember, these people don't have any chariots. They don't have horses. They don't have spears. They don't have swords. They have, in a miraculous way, defeated the most powerful people group on the face of the planet at that time without throwing a punch, without drawing a sword, without doing any such thing because God fought for them. Now, that seems to be the theme that follows throughout this entire story. God fights for them on their behalf. He does these things for them. But a secondary or antithesis to the theme is, but they keep thinking they have to do something. I mean, in the beginning, they're thinking, you know what? We can't do this. Therefore, we should just stay slaves in Egypt. We can't do this. Therefore, you know what? We should just put all this stuff back and go back to where we belong. We can't cross this river. We can't defeat that army. We can't beat Pharaoh. They keep coming back to that realization of what they are incapable of without focusing on what God is willing to do in place of their inabilities. And oftentimes, this is where we find ourselves in self-defeating ways. Uh, When you find this passage, you read through it, one thing that you hear from them, which is amazing, is they say something to Moses where they're like, why don't we just go back to Egypt? We told you from the very beginning that we should just stay here, that we should just serve the Egyptians. That's kind of like our place in life. Now, why would you ever come to a position or a place in life where you believe the highest that you can think for yourself is that you could be a slave to another human being? That's the best that you can do. That's the most that you can hope for. That's where they really came to in their life. This is it. This is as high as we can go. This is the most that we can hope for. That is a very limited view of God's love, God's plan, God's authority in your life. And yet many of us, we walk in those same places. We look at our life and go, well, this is probably it. This is probably the best husband I can be, the best father I can be, the best wife I can be. This is probably the best I can hope for in my job, the best I can hope for in society. Now, I'm not here to present to you any kind of prosperity gospel. What I'm trying to say to you is this. It's not about how much you achieve. It's about not thinking about your life in terms of what you're capable of doing. Because when we do that, we either overestimate or underestimate, depending on what our background was, depending on what we've achieved in our life. Some people find themselves on one extreme of that. They've achieved a lot of things. Maybe they had a great upbringing, a great family. They had a lot of resources put into them. They had a great opportunity and a great education. They had some great connections. And, and they begin to think, you know what, I can make of my life whatever I want. They're thinking too far. And then there's other people that maybe didn't have all of that effort. Maybe they had a lot of mistakes in the very beginning, and and by the grace of God, they've come out of some of that, but they think, you know what, with all the mistakes that I've made, and, and all the relationships that I've destroyed, and all the opportunities that I've forsaken, this is really the most that I can hope for. In both of those instances, they are judging their life by their own abilities. 
by their own capabilities. And what scripture keeps pointing us back to is this. Don't think about what you can do. Think about what God is willing to do, what God wants to do on your behalf. And so God is the one who is the focus. God is the one who is the center. God is the one who is the resource, not us. And we have to keep thinking about that because we oftentimes find ourselves in the same vein of thought as these early Israelites. Even after God has delivered us, even after God has miraculously called us, even as God has forgiven us, called us into a relationship with him, whenever we come up against that next battle, we begin to think, well, this is it. This is where I've got to show how much I love God. I've got to show how much I appreciate what he did by doing, by overcoming this. Now, I do believe that there is an error of looking at this, and we're going to see it in Moses' words, because some people stop with what Moses says, and they don't incorporate what God says after that. We're going to see those two things come together, and I think you see the perfect balance of how we should see the battles and the storms, the difficult, critical situations that we might find ourselves in in this life. So with that being said, verses one through four kind of set up this whole thing. I want you to look down in verse five. We're going to pick up right there. The Egyptians are going to know that God is Lord. He's going to demonstrate his power to them. That's what he says to Moses. Now imagine how that must have felt. Imagine how being in this position between an enemy and a insurmountable odds of crossing this water you know, with all the stuff that you have, with all of your family, with all the things that you've brought out of Egypt, it just seems like you either got to abandon everything and swim for it, and it's every man for himself, or we're all going to die here when Pharaoh catches up. But yet God says, this is exactly what I wanted to happen. This is exactly why I've brought you to this place. Now look how it continues in verse five. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Now, now notice that word right there, that last little bit. The people of Israel were going out defiantly. So you have Pharaoh who's second guessing the decisions that he's made. And in doing that, he says, you know what? We can't live without these people being our servants. You know, there's so much we're going to miss. There's so much we're not going to be able to accomplish. There's so much, so many building projects we want to accomplish that will take so much longer time without these people. What are we thinking? We can't let them go. And so he garners up all the resources that he has and he makes his intention to go and catch them. And the, the scripture gives us the perspective of not only Pharaoh, but the perspective of the Israelites as they're walking out. As they're walking out, they're walking out defiantly. They're like, yeah, we got this. Look at all this gold and silver that we have. Pharaoh is defeated foe in the background. God's going to take us to the promised land. Here we go. So that gives you the attitudes of the two people that are involved thus far. Look at verse 9. The Egyptians pursued them 
all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea. Now, when they get to this place, and again, it, it tells us specifically that the people of Israel are in this place that God has brought them to. So they are in the very center of God's will for their life. They are where God has led them to be. And in that place where God has led them to be is where they find the most difficult place of their situation thus far. And that is, they are now a great enemy of the state because not only were they looked down upon, now they are the ones who have caused all this carnage, have taken all of this, this gold and silver and valuables from Egypt, and now they are leaving, and Pharaoh knows they're leaving. So if they ever thought that there was any kind of kindness or generosity or compassion that Pharaoh would feel towards them, it is long gone. So now you have this enemy with anger that is coming after you. And before you, you have a river, a sea that you cannot cross. And this is the very center of God's will for their life. Now that's an important lesson for us, isn't it? Sometimes being in a very difficult situation is exactly where God wants you to be. Sometimes God actually leads you into a difficult situation. Why? Because life is not about ease. Life is not about all victory and all overcoming. Life is about learning as we overcome. And so God gives us difficult situations so that we understand how to trust him, how to grow in our faith. If you look at how this story has unfolded thus far, you see so many opportunities for these Israelites to grow in their faith. You could back up even further and, and include Moses in this. And look where Moses was from the beginning. Look at what he thought he had to offer God in the very beginning and how he came to the end of himself and then how God used him. Look at how Moses' faith has grown, even in this story. Moses is the one who has this great, incredible confidence that God is going to fight for them. And yet it's the Israelites who don't believe this. Why? Is it because they don't believe Moses? No, it's because their faith hasn't grown, hasn't had the opportunity to grow like Moses' has. Is that an excuse for their perspective? No, but it's a reality. It's a reality that God keeps bringing us into these difficult places until we learn the lessons of trust and faith, till we learn about who he is and his character and who we are in our character so that we can see life for what it really is. And that's what we see again and again. There's another thing I want to point out in this passage. That is the inconsistency of the mind of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Not only is their thinking inconsistent, their thinking is also illogical. Notice what they said there again. They said, oh my goodness, these people, we let them go. Why in the world did we let them go? And it says that he changed his mind. You know what, when you think with the unrepentant, unregenerated mind, it's constantly changing its mind. Have you ever known someone like that? You ever known someone who is out there looking for their purpose or their identity in life, and it seems like they just jump from one thing to another, to another, to another? 
Have you ever, someone, ever seen someone who got real involved in eating healthy and they read all the things and they're on like the, whatever the new diet is and they're having this and putting butter in their coffee and, you know, chasing after this stuff. And I mean, they're doing, oh, this is great. This is what you got to do. You got to follow after this. And then the next thing is that, well, they chase after something else. And then all of a sudden they abandon that all together. And it's about this thing. And, and they keep chasing after these hopes in life of finding what they're looking for. And, and the reality is they don't really know what they're looking for. And because they don't know what they're looking for, their mind is constantly changing with the changing situations, with the changing science of the day, with the changing kind of temperature of the culture that they live in. And when you're like that, it's much like what James says, that with that double-minded man, that he is unstable in all of his ways, and his mind or his life is as unstable as the seas. Now, the sea is an amazing thing because if you, like I do, ever go down to the ocean and you see the Gulf, we have this incredible opportunity that most of the people in our country would love to have, and that is to be so close to the ocean. Now, when you go down to the ocean, you can see the change of the ocean in really a short amount of time. I don't know how many of you go down there and stay at Gulf Shores or Orange Beach for like a week. But if you do, you will notice the change in the surf in just a matter of time. You'll get up in the morning and it's completely flat. It almost looks like a lake out there. The, the water is just barely just kind of lapping up on to the ocean. And then all of a sudden the wind begins to pick up. And all of a sudden you see a little bit bigger. And then the swells start coming. And you see them rise and they fall. And then all of a sudden you have a day like today. I can only imagine what it looks like right now. And you have these waves that just come in and crash and turn over and just pound. And you know what? The only difference is the waves and the water respond to the chaotic or the calm conditions that they are in. The water does nothing in and of itself. It just responds to what's happening around it. That's the picture that James gives to that unregenerated mind. What happens is that mind just goes with whatever is happening in that day and they find themselves on this side, then they find themselves on this side. They find themselves believing in this, then they find themselves believing in that. They can contradict themselves so many times because they don't stand on anything that's certain. They don't stand on anything that is predictable. And thus, not only are they always changing their mind, being inconsistent, they're also illogical. Look at what they say in verse 5. What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us. Now think about that for a moment. Now you and I, I'm thinking you've been here as we've taught through this, um, pretty much they had nothing to do with it. God had everything to do with it. God is the one that changed their mind. God is the one that freed their people. But at this point, even after all of that display of God's power and God's sovereignty, they still think that somehow they are in control. We let these people go. What were we thinking? Now, if anything, they should have learned, they should have learned that they are not in control of the destiny of their own lives, let alone the lives of their country. And yet, what does the unregenerated mind do? It keeps coming back to an illogical conclusion of, somehow, I still am in control. Wait a minute. What, what, what does the chaos of your life say? It says that I've made mistakes up till now, but now I've got it. Now, this time, I'm due to make a good decision. 
And that's just not reality. All of that points to the fact that we are inconsistent, that the wisdom that we're living by is the wisdom of this world and not the consistent, unchangeable wisdom of God. Now, a lot of times that's where we end up with our thinking. I think verse 9 sets up the dilemma and, and really the opportunity of the next phase of the growth of Israelites' faith. Okay, look at verse 9. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea. So again, that's where they are. They're right in this place that God has brought them to. And here comes Pharaoh behind it. Now we have a difficult situation. It says they walked out with a lot of pride. It says they walked out defiantly. And now all of a sudden they find themselves in a difficult situation. They find themselves in a terrible place positionally. The Egyptians have caught up with them from the rear. The waters of the Red Sea are right in front of them. And they are now sitting ducks. Okay. So nine sets up verses 10 through 14. Look how it continues. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And what does it say? They feared greatly. Can you imagine going from walking out defiantly to fearing greatly. I mean, that's the change of their mind. Why? Because again, they look at their circumstances. The reason they walked out defiantly was because they were only looking at their circumstances. See, even though God has fought for them, they still have not yet learned to take their eyes off of their circumstances and put them squarely on who God is and what God can do for them. Now, this happens over and over again throughout their history. You can find that even in the good times that they take their eyes off of God. There's even a time that they were experiencing so much blessing, and yet the, the culture as a whole, the, the culture of the nation of Israel was sliding into immorality. And, and there was literally this time when, when the leaders of Israel said, there's no way our enemies could come in to defeat us. Look at how much prosperity we have. God is for us. There's no way he's going to let our enemies come in and defeat us. Their thinking was, because we have blessing around us, that is God fighting for us. That's not always the case. See, they've taken their eyes off of God and who he is and what he desires for us, and they put it on what's happening around them. And they interpreted, look, we have lots of stuff. Look, our temple is still standing. Look, our enemies are not around us. There's no way that they could ever overtake us. And it was just a moment after that that the fall of Israel began to take place that was going to be a terrible, terrible fall that did end up in their temple being utterly destroyed Stone after stone torn down till no stone was on top of another. Why? Because they weren't looking at God, they were looking at their circumstances. So whether your circumstances are bad or your circumstances are good, they're the worst thing that you can look at. And yet, it's so hard for us not to, isn't it? I mean, when we walk through something, we either see the consequences of the mistakes that we've made or we see maybe the beauty of a good decision that we've made. And then we can't help but think that somehow we are capable of directing our own lives. 
that we are capable of making some things happen or making things not happen. And then all of a sudden we overplay that to the point that we believe that we're in charge of our own destiny. Now we are in charge of our own destiny and we've all chosen that. And that is rebellion against God and that is eternal death. And so we left to ourselves are always going to pursue that because no matter how you view your life, it's going to be wrong and that's where it's going to lead you. And that's the reason God enters into our stories. That's the reason he introduces himself to us. That's the reason he calls us to know him, to worship him. It's not for his benefit, it's for ours. It's, it's, we're the ones who gain from that. We're the ones who get the wisdom. He already has it all. We're the one that get the direction for our lives. He already has all the direction that he needs. And we're the ones that get the benefit of the relationship. He's the one that's going to have to pay the price in the end. He's the one who's going to have to redeem us with his blood. So again, you have to remember that as God introduces himself to us, he does so so that we will draw our eyes to him and look at him and learn to look at him only as we walk through our lives, no matter if it's a good situation or a bad situation. They find themselves fearing greatly And look what the next part, this is important to understand the flow of it as well. And the people of Israel cried out to who? Cried out to the Lord. They they cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, it is because there are no, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? So they give us, the scripture gives us two things that we need to pay attention to because it gives us the heart of where they're coming from. Number one, it says they cry out to the Lord. Now let me ask you something. Is is it a good thing to cry out to the Lord in in a bad situation? Absolutely. But their heart is not in the right place crying out to the Lord. And that's where he gives us the next little part of what they said to Moses, which really tells us why they're crying out to the Lord. They're not crying out to the Lord and saying, oh, Lord, you are the only hope. You have delivered us thus far, Lord. Save us. Be our deliverer now. They're going, what in the world are you thinking? Why have you brought us here? We should have kept going straight. What are you thinking? They're crying out to the Lord in complaining. They're crying out to the Lord in disgust. They're crying out to the Lord frustrated with how things are going. And we see that because of what they say there to Moses. Look how it continues. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For if... Or for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They already see their fate as death. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Now, there is some great truth in here. Number one, Moses, as a prophet, says something that becomes utterly true. And that is, these Egyptians that you see here today, you will never see again. The defeat that God delivers to Pharaoh and the Egyptian army is so catastrophic that we never see any confrontation between Egypt and Israel until the very end of Solomon's reign as king. That's the first time we ever see another interaction between Egypt and Israel. 
It is so utterly defeating what happens in this story that literally they never see these Egyptians again the rest of their lives. Think about that for a moment. This is something that has been a part of their life from their births. They've been slaves. They've seen these. They feared these Egyptians forever. And every time in this whole story, when they think they've gotten away, when they think something good has happened, it seems like something dark overshadows it. And here they find themselves, surely we're dying. They're going to bury us out here in the wilderness, right here by this water. Why didn't we just stay in Egypt? And Moses says, have you not been paying attention? Here's what God's going to do. Number one, you got to quit fearing. you got to put your eyes on the one who is capable and powerful. And you've got to believe that he is strong enough to deliver us today. Not just deliver us, but deliver us to the point that you will never see these people again. Now, I think there's two things in that that we really need to highlight. Number one is it is God who fights our battles. Number two is there is always a temptation to think that we're never going to get out of the situation that we're in. Now, I think that there's a legitimacy to that perspective from a human perspective, right? That They've been slaves. It seems like God has promised to deliver them, and he partly delivers them, and then they find themselves in another difficult situation, and then they have this great uh, perspective, and then they have this bad perspective. Then they have this great victory, and then they have this setback. And it seems like it just keeps going back and forth. So they've convinced themselves, we're never going to get beyond these Egyptians. We're ne- things are never going to be different than they are right now. And what we have to learn is that through the process of sanctification, it does seem like we keep fighting the same sins over and over again. Sometimes it seems like we keep fighting the same enemies over and over again. Have you ever had that experience with a besetting sin where you get victory over it for a little while only to befall its lure or temptation to you again? And you just keep thinking to yourself, I'm never going to get past this. But you know what, my friends, you have forgotten about glorification. Yeah, justification happens instantly. Sanctification is this long process, but sanctification leads us to glorification. That is one day sin will be gone. It will be removed from us. There will be no more temptation. There is a day coming. Will it not be the same? But there is this process that God is drawing us through that are going to have some high times and some low times, but ultimately it will always end in our victory. Why? Because it's dependent on God, not us. The waters of the Red Sea in front of them, the army of Pharaoh behind them, and their stinking thinking inside of them. I mean, that's just a bad situation for them to find themselves in. And it leads them to a lot of incredible perspective change that as we, far removed from the story, not being the participants in it, sit there and go, that's so unreasonable. Look at verse 11 again. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Now think about what they just said right there. Number one, that is like just, you know, this reminds you of that crazy uncle you have that always talks in one-liners. You know what I'm talking about? Or maybe it's a grandpa you have. He would always, you know, he would always use some kind of metaphor to say whatever it was instead of saying what, what he actually says. He would say stuff like, you know, that dude there's more excited than a dog in a hubcat factory. You know, you ever heard somebody like that that uses that kind of thing? That guy right there is more nuttier than a porta potty at a peanut festival. 
That's kind of gross, but you can think about that one a little later. But how many of y'all have ever had that kind of guy that always talks in these metaphors? And that's exactly what they do. And they're doing it because they're hyping this up. Well, Moses, was there not enough graves in Egypt? Is that why you brought us out here? Because you wanted us to die out here where there's plenty of room to bury us all? Is that really what's happening, Moses? Or look at the next part. What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? They're, they're asking Moses. They're questioning his integrity. They're questioning his intentions. Why have you done this? What kind of leader are you? Why would you take all of these people out here and just let us die here in the wilderness? They give their reason in verse 12. And then I think in verse 13 is Moses' response, which gives some perspective to it as well. Look at what he says in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. What great advice. Fear not. And again, I've said this before as we've seen this show up in Scripture, and it shows up a lot. The reason the words fear not show up in Scripture so often is because it is the current condition of humanity to always fear when things are going wrong. So what you find in Scripture is not advice that is irrelevant to our situation, you always find advice that is relevant, okay? God doesn't spend a whole lot of the pages in Scripture telling us things that we don't struggle with. It tells us things that he knows we will struggle with, which is why it says so often, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. Why? Because it is our human capacity to fear when things go wrong. We live in a climate of fear, um, there are many people who haven't come back to church from the beginning of this pandemic because of fear. There are many people who do continue on going about their daily business. Be- and, and, and in spite of that, they're constantly fearful. They know they have to continue in life. They know they got to go to work, do these things. But they live in this state of fear. Now, here's the thing. Should you wear a mask? Should you not wear a mask? Should you get the shot? Should you not get the shot? Here's the thing. No matter what, if you don't calm the condition of your heart. None of those things matter what you do. You know, you can walk around with a mask and the vaccine and all the kind of things and still be a person who walks constantly in fear and that fear will defeat you. And, and you know, I'm not, I'm not saying the opposite of that is good either. It's not good to walk around in arrogance. Okay. It's not good to walk around going, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm my own person. You know, that's a whole nother perspective. Here's the thing. We, we oftentimes are looking at these minute, minutia details that are a part of our lives and we're judging whether we are faithful or whether we are good or whether other people are depending on these small choices. And in reality, what scripture calls us to is to put our eyes on God and we could walk in that. And the reality is we got to quit judging each other based on the circumstances of what's happening in our culture because all it serves to do is divide us as the body of Christ. And you know what? Is there room for someone to get a vaccine and someone not to get a vaccine in the body of Christ? There absolutely is. Let me just tell you something. God could call different people to do different things because we are all in different places in our walk. And there's nowhere in Scripture that it causes us to judge someone else because they do or don't do something the way that we do it. We have to be faithful with what God has called us to do. We've got to go to our prayer closet and say, Lord, what do you have for me? 
How can I exhibit my faith in you in this process? And you know what? That will look different for different people. It's not about walking in fear. It's not about finding a band-aid for that fear from humanity. It's about learning to trust in God. And that's ultimately what brings us together. Because no matter where we are, we all are called to trust and have faith in God. We are all called to fear God and nothing else. Now, that doesn't mean that we walk through life irrationally. It means that we operate from a wisdom that comes from God. Now, as you see this, there's three things that he says. Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. I mean, th- those, all three of those things are great advice because those are three things that we rarely do. Number one, rarely do we not fear. Number two, rarely do we stand firm. We usually run. Number three, rarely do we see the salvation of the Lord because we're trying to create our own salvation. Look how it continues in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now, this is, this is how we know. Number one, if you read this out of context, you think that God is um, rebuking Moses. He's not rebuking Moses. Why? Even though it is very singular, and this is pointed to Moses, Moses is the representative of Israel to God. What was their attitude? They cried out to God. But what was their attitude in their crying out? Complaining against God. So he's saying to them through Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. In other words, what are you looking back at me for? I've already told you what you need to do. Move forward. Lift up your staff, he tells Moses, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. There's repetition there of three things, okay? Whenever you see that kind of repetition, you always want to pay attention to that. I want to draw your mind to it because in a moment I'm going to bring that back. First, let me say this. Verse 15 is not a rebuke against Moses. It's indicative of the hearts of the people. It's letting us know that they have stalled out and they are in fear and they are freaking out, not knowing what they should do. Should we charge after these uh, uh, Egyptians that are running after us? Should we jump in the water and just swim for it? Should we run across the shoreline and just hope we can beat them to the next place that we can cross over? That's what they're beginning to think. What can we do? I love how one author said it. He said, far be it from me to ever say a word in disparagement of the holy, happy, heavenly exercise of prayer. But beloved, there are times when prayer is not enough, when prayer itself is out of season. When we have prayed over a matter to a certain degree, it then becomes sinful to tarry any longer. Our plain duty is to carry our desires into action. And having asked God's guidance and having received divine power from on high to go at once to our duty without any longer deliberation or delay. Now, of course, Spurgeon says that. 
Um, and you could take that out of context and you could kind of argue with parts of his words. It's always good to pray. Even when you're being obedient, to stay in an attitude of prayer is always a good thing. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that person who goes into that prayer closet or that place of prayer and they never come out. Like they just stay praying and they never fall into the action that that prayer should lead them into. You see, prayer is this benefit that God gives to us to strengthen us. It it gives us this solidarity between us and our relationship with God. It's the opportunity that we have to repent, to be restored back in relationship with God, to receive divine wisdom, and to receive courage, to receive our identity, to know who we are in Christ because we have this incredible privilege of prayer. And in the process of praying, it should fortify our faith. It should strengthen us. It should give us the resolve to walk in faith, understanding that God walks before us, that he fights our battles for us. And so what Spurgeon is saying is, you know, there comes a time when you have to get up off of your knees and start walking. You got to get off your knees and praying and start walking in that prayer, allowing God to work miracles on your behalf because of your faith and trust in him. That's where you see the miraculous. Look at these three things. I want you to kind of see what they said. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the God. The next thing he says is, he tells Moses, lift your staff, stretch out your hand, go through the waters of the Red Sea. And then the next thing we see is, I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. I'm going to get glory over his chariots, and I'm going to get glory over his horsemen. Do you see that repetition of three, three, and three? Okay, I don't think I need to tell you that whenever you see those patterns of three in Scripture, the author is drawing your attention to something. Look at that right there. The greatest advice, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of God. The miraculous, lift up that stick that you found out in the wilderness and watch what I can do with that stick. Okay, not even you, not even a person, not even a human being with blood flowing through them. The stick that you found while you were a shepherd out in the wilderness, hold that thing up and watch how I deliver you through that small inanimate object. And so he does that. Stretch out your hand. That takes faith. That takes action. You hear from the Lord and you act on that. Go through. There's another action. As God provides the miraculous, you walk in that and you trust him. Now you think, well, obviously when that opens up, that's, I'm telling you, will you, if you go down to Gulf Shores today and all of a sudden as you step onto the shore, a wall of water opens up before you. I just wonder how tempted you are to go into that with a wall of water on your left and a wall of water on your right without any fear of trepidation. Okay, So here's the thing. Just because the miraculous happens in front of you doesn't mean it's easy to walk in what's before you. It's easier to stand back and go, wow, look at that, than it is to get involved in that. Do you see that? So sometimes we can be amazed at what God does, but when he calls us to walk in the middle of that miracle, it gets very difficult. And then, of course, it tells us what's going to happen in the end. Glory over Pharaoh, glory over his chariots, and glory over his horsemen. These are all the power items that Egypt has over Israel. And God says, with a stick and a shepherd I found in the wilderness, I'm going to deliver you against the most powerful army on the face of the earth. Wow. Verses 19 and 20 
or the setup for the miracle. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So again, there's this miraculous thing. Moses holds up the staff. The wind begins to blow, and this cloud that has been leading them all the way now moves and shifts and comes behind them. And it creates a barrier. And it says that darkness was over Egypt, but yet it lit up the night sky so that Israel could still see what they were doing. Think about that for a moment. This is the beginning of the true exodus. So in other words, there's enough light. They can see the path through the water, but there's enough darkness over here that Egypt just stops. They stop cold in their tracks. They put all their stuff down. They're like, we can't see. We can't move forward. We don't know which way we're going. And so they just stop in that moment. So God leads them at the front, and then God protects them at the rear. Do you see this all-encompassing God that we serve? He takes care of where we are going, and he takes care of the threats that come from behind. He is fully invested in their success and in their overcoming in this difficult situation. Why? Because he promised that he would. He promised that he would do this. Now look at verses 21 through 25, which is the result. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea. All of Pharaoh's horses his chariots and his horsemen. There's the three things again. And in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And so what happens is it tells us of everything that's taken place after this long conversation conversation after this great test of their faith, they cross into the Red Sea. They walk on dry ground, very important to pay attention to, and they come out the other side. And because God has hardened the hearts of the Egyptians, he has drawn them in as well. But as they get to the middle, it says nothing about them walking on dry ground. Matter of fact, it says it threw them into chaos. Wait, wait a minute. How are they walking on dry ground and yet we are not on dry ground? The wheels begin to clog up. They go, oh no, we're not going to be able to do this. Let's flee from them. Well, now they're turning around and trying to go back as the whole rest of the army's coming in and it causes this chaos. And then God allows those waters to come back together and crush their enemy. Now, here's the thing that I want you to see that's very easy to overlook is the references back to creation. When God provides a way, God is always in the business of separating. God is in the process of separating his beloved Israel from Egypt. How does he do that? He separates the waters from the waters. What happens when he separates the waters from the waters? He has dry ground. Go back to the creation story. What happens the first three days of creation? God separates. What does he separate? What's the first day? He separates light from, what's the first part of this? 
A cloud comes over. There was light for the Israelites, but darkness for the Egyptians. What's the second thing that happens in the creation? God separates the waters above from the waters of below. What happens in this story? God separates the walls of waters. What happens on the third day? God separates dry land from the water. What happens in the third part of this story? There is dry land that's created by the breath of God, and they walk through on this. And what did we say always happens when we see God's judgment? We see the reverse of creation. All of a sudden, the waters that have been separated come back together. Where there was dry ground, there is no more. And it becomes the wrath of God on the Egyptian army. Do you see this beauty? The very thing that becomes the salvation for his people becomes the wrath of God poured out on their enemies. The very same instruments. The very same situation. See, here's the thing. You don't understand the situations that you're in. Let me just tell you that. You don't. But yet, your temptation is to try and figure it out, to try and figure out, what is God doing with this, and and how can I help God out, and and what do I need to do to fix this? And and you know what you need to do? You need to take the advice of of, uh, Moses here. Be still. Listen. Follow the directions that God has given to you. What does God say? In this situation, he says, move forward. Trust me. Move forward. There's water. I know. Keep walking. Trust me in this. It looks like you're not going to make it, but you are because I'm in charge of this. This is actually what I want to do, not only to save you, but also to destroy your enemies. You see, we want, we want salvation for ourselves, and we don't care about anything else. You know, we just want to make sure that we make it across. But what we don't understand is sometimes God's blessing and God's wrath comes in the same package. It comes in the same situation. And we have to allow those things to work itself out. The other thing that I want you to see here that is a strong picture is a picture of our salvation. Ultimately, this passage is not about correlating our own situations to the Red Sea. Now, that is a temptation that we have. And I don't think it's a bad uh, application to draw from it. In other words, what I'm saying is a lot of people read this and they read it from a moralistic point of view and they go, well, we all have our Red Seas, right? We all have the things before us that God has to provide this miraculous way through. Here, here's, here's what this passage is about. It's not about that as much as it's about God's salvation. How does God's salvation happen? It happens miraculously. It happens before us. It happens with us, him leading us, calling us, pulling us out, directing us, choosing us for this very purpose. And what is the indication that he has saved them? They go through the waters and they become free people. The Egyptians go through the waters and they become dead people. Okay? Now I want you to think about that for a moment. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of baptism. You see that? On one side of the Red Sea, they are slaves, fearful for their lives, and unable to fight for themselves. God miraculously steps in front and behind them, delivers them through the water, and listen to this, when they walk out of the other side of the water, they are free people. They are a nation of their own, And they have no more enemies that are pursuing them. They go from slaves to free people in this short distance of the Red Sea. Now, what is baptism a picture of? 
It's a picture of us dying to ourselves and our own abilities to try and save ourselves and our own efforts to do such and saying, you know what, God, I can't do it. I'm completely dependent on you. And the scripture says in the New Testament that when we come to that picture, it's like dying with Christ. And so baptism is a picture of this burial. We go into the waters and as we go into the waters, we are dead. We are slaves to sin. And the picture is when we come out of that water, we have a new life. We are a free people. And God is our Father. Now, again, it doesn't happen at baptism. Baptism is a picture of what is already true. Let me ask you this. Before they ever stepped foot into the Red Sea, were they already free people? Were they? Yes. Why? Because God said that they were. God called it before it ever was true in reality. But God said, I made a promise to Abraham that I was going to deliver you, that you were going to be here. I was going to bring you out and I'm going to bring you into the land flowing with milk and honey. It's already true no matter what happens. Why? Because God said it was true and he's going to make it come to fruition. See, a lot of times our inabilities in this life to follow after God is because we don't believe what he's already said about us. He says that you are saints, that you are children of the most high, that you are heirs to the throne of God in heaven. How? Through Jesus. But do we live that way? Do we live believing those things that God said is already true? Well, maybe one day I'll see that. Maybe one day I'll run. No, it's already true. And until you embrace what's already true, you will never live in the reality of what is true. And I'm not making this up about baptism. I want to show you how the New Testament authors point to this. Two passages and we're done. 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, Paul says, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were, what's the word? What does he use? Baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The picture of being enveloped in the sovereignty and the call of God, even in the midst of a difficult circumstance. I love how another author put it. He said this, he said, every age has its Egypt its force of oppression, just as every age has its children of Israel who long to be free. However, this misses the point. Israel's passage through the sea is not primarily intended to teach us what to do when we are in spiritual trouble any more than it serves as a how-to lesson on what to do when we come to a large body of water. Rather, it is meant to teach us about coming to God for salvation. Do you see this? That's the importance of this passage. It teaches us to come to God for salvation. You can't do it on your own. You're not going to be able to make it. You don't have the resources. Go to God for your salvation. No matter if it's the major salvation of your life and forgiveness of sins or a smaller salvation in a circumstance of your life where you need God to deliver you, go to God for your salvation. And you know, the gospel of John, which we just studied, I told you before, as we went through it, that John uses Passover and the story of Egypt as the framework for his entire gospel. Let me point you back to a reality of that. John chapter five, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Jesus says he does not come into judgment, but has what, what has he done? Read it out loud. Y'all can read that. 
He has from, yes, do you see that? He has passed from death to life. What did they think was going to happen to them on one side? We're going to die out here. Why have you brought us to be buried? And they passed through the waters and the, on the other side found life. What does Jesus say? Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into the judgment of what everyone else is going to experience in the middle of the sea, but has passed, has made it through, has traversed that difficult circumstance from death to life. Amen? I hope the same thing is true as I travel the body of water that I will have to go through today, <laughs> and maybe God can open that up for us. What a beautiful promise, though. Amen? beautiful picture of, of not only this incredible story, but how God is faithful to the calling that he gives to each one of us. Let's pray. God, thank you for a word that just reminds us of your sovereignty, of your faithfulness. Lord, may we get out of your way and learn to follow after you, knowing that you lead us and that you come behind us, that you literally envelop us in the difficult circumstances of life. Ultimately, the most difficult is about our salvation. You are the one who can deliver us into eternal life. Lord, if you are big enough and strong enough to take care of such a monumental need for sinners like us, how much more can you handle even the smaller situations that we find ourselves in need of someone to act on our behalf? God, in a climate of our world where we face a pandemic, where we face an oncoming hurricane, Lord, be the prince of peace for us. Lord, help us to strive for unity in the body of Christ and the way that we love each other. May that become indicative to the world that we are your children. Lord, help us to major on the majors and help us to have our hearts drawn in to a relationship with you that not only just loves and, and, and just looks forward to and relishes that opportunity, but also that lives and walks in that reality. God, may you be honored. May you be glorified by the way your children respond to the teaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.